0: there are an estimated 8.5 million actively practicing Jehovah's Witnesses today. And what are those 8.5 million souls banking their eternity on? Well, as we're about to see, it's all sinking sand. Welcome to the Sound Words podcast, where our goal is to help Christians love and live out God's word. I'm Jesse Randolph, pastor-teacher at Indian Hills Community Church, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Our church, Indian Hills, sits right in the middle of the continental U.S. We're right in the heart of America the Beautiful. And one thing about our nation is that in our 200-plus years of existence, we have been a prolific exporter of many different things—food, oil, cars, aircraft, pharmaceuticals, movies, sports, Republican democracy, you name it. Well, unfortunately, what our nation has also been known for is being a prolific exporter of bad theology. This includes the so-called prosperity gospel, which started here in the U.S. and and sadly has gained popularity all throughout Africa and South America in our day. But what we are also an exporter of would be cults. Now, I should define that term, cult. A cult, by definition, is a false form of Christianity. It's a spurious form of of so-called Christianity. According to one definition, a cult is a group that professes to be Christian, but so grossly distorts the fundamental doctrines of true Christian faith that it sends people to hell rather than to heaven. Now, to make sure we're getting our categories straight here, a cult is to be distinguished from an apostate Christian group. An apostate Christian group would be a movement in which truth once existed But whatever truth it once proclaimed and possessed, that truth has now been surpassed and eclipsed by man-made traditions and philosophies. Examples of apostate Christian groups would be Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Cults, by contrast, are groups or movements that are characterized by the fact that they never possessed the truth, and they never taught the truth. Their teachings were fraught with error and misdirection from the very beginning. Their aberrant teachings, which came through the lips of deeply flawed leaders, are lies from the pit of hell, and they were rooted in falsehood from their inception. We've already covered one such American-born cult group, Mormonism, on an earlier version of the Sound Words podcast. Today we're going to address another, the Watchtower Society, the group which is now widely known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's start by addressing a bit of the history of this movement. Uh, The year was 1881. In that year, a man named Charles Taze Russell, a Pennsylvania merchant and minister, founded an organization called the Zion's Watchtower Tract Society. Now, the whole purpose of the Zion's Watchtower Tract Society was to publish Russell's writings. That included Russell's tracts. It also included a six-volume publication of his writings, which was really the fruit of his study of the Bible called Studies in the Scriptures. Russell also spearheaded a movement which was known as the Bible Student Movement, which despite having the name Bible in its title, was actually very much adrift from the Bible in many different respects, as it promoted many different unbiblical teachings and ideas. Uh, Let me give you a few different examples. Uh, For starters, Russell and his early followers in the Bible Student Movement insisted that Jesus Christ was going to return to the earth in 1874. But Jesus Christ didn't return to earth in 1874. And one can only imagine the sweat that was beginning to form on Russell's brow on New Year's Eve of 1874 as the calendar page was about to turn to 1875. Well, to address this major problem of the obvious non-return of Christ in 1874, Russell changed course. And he did so by insisting that Christ had returned to earth in 1874, but he did so invisibly. Basically, Jesus had returned, we just hadn't seen him. How convenient. Right away, red flags should have started going up. Here's another one. Later in his life, Russell said that the beginning of World War I in 1914 marked the beginning of Armageddon and the end of the current church age. And that prediction was rooted in his his earlier prediction back in the 1880s that this world was going to end in 1914. Here's Russell in his own words. This is from book two of his studies in the scriptures. He said, it is an established truth that the final end of the kingdoms of this world and the full establishment of the kingdom of God will be accomplished at the end of A.D. 1914. Well, Russell was wrong. World War I did not bring about the end of the world, and we are still in the church age. So by my calculation, we can say that Russell was off on this prediction by at least 110 years. Here's another one. Russell also advocated the idea of soul sleep. Uh, The idea that when we die, we somehow slip out of consciousness, meaning, according to Russell, sinners in hell won't consciously experience the wrath God pours out on them. Instead, they'll somehow be anesthetized from eternal torment, the way a, a dental patient receives anesthesia before they sit down for a root canal. Related to this idea of soul sleep, Russell also promoted the unbiblical idea that those who are condemned to hell will eventually be annihilated from existence. Hell wasn't eternal in Russell's estimation. Rather, it had an expiration date. The unbelievers' period of torment, which was already mitigated by the fact that they would supposedly be in this state of soul sleep, would come to an eventual end, according to Russell. In other words, combining these two notions together, soul sleep and annihilationism, Charles Taze Russell flatly denied the Bible's teachings about the reality of the fate of those who reject Jesus Christ, which is an eternity of torment in hell, which lasts forever. Finally, and this is so important, so critical, Charles Taze Russell denied the full deity of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches with such clarity that Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or Colossians 2.9 says, In him, meaning Christ, the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. Well, Russell rejected the Bible's teachings. He didn't believe that Jesus was and is eternally God. The furthest Russell was willing to go was to say that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God on the cross. In other words, something happened at Calvary by which Jesus became God's Son, But that's much different than the Bible's teaching, which is that Jesus, God the Son, dwelt as God eternally with God the Father. Russell denied this core element of Christian doctrine. Now, Russell was a restorationist. He came from a line of teachers uh, going back to the 1830s and 1840s who claimed that they were restoring the true church to some primitive or pure form of Christianity. But in reality, as we've just seen, His teachings were taking, and continue to take, unsuspecting converts to hell. Well, Charles Taze Russell died in 1916, and as we continue to trace out the history of this movement, when Russell died, the Watchtower Society was taken over by a man named Joseph Franklin Rutherford. This man was also a judge, a law court judge, and so he is more commonly known as Judge Rutherford. Now, many changes to the Watchtower Society came along with Judge Rutherford's rise to power. First, Judge Rutherford took more direct control over all publications printed by the Watchtower Society. Second, Judge Rutherford took a much harder line on what its members could and could not believe. For instance, he took the position that all non-Jehovah's Witness churches are false churches. He also took the position that salvation depends on membership in the Watchtower Society. And he also said that those who disagree with official Watchtower Society teachings are to be banished and shunned. Third, in 1931, Rutherford proposed a new name for those in this movement founded by Charles Taze Russell. That new name was Jehovah's Witnesses, which is the name by which this group is known today. Well, like his predecessor, Charles Taze Russell, Judge Rutherford kept predicting the, the date of the end of the world and changing that date when the events he predicted failed to take place. He did this at least 10 times, and that's been a regular pattern for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Ever since Russell and since Rutherford, the Jehovah's Witness movement has been known for its multiple attempts at predicting the date of the end of the world, none of which has come true. Uh, The current date, by the way, is set for 2033, which means you can pretty much take it to the bank based on their very poor track record that that will not be the date of the end of the world. Well, After Rutherford's death in 1942, a new leader came into power in the Jehovah's Witness movement named Nathan Knorr. And what Knorr is really known for is that under his leadership, the Jehovah's Witnesses published and promoted a new Bible translation called the New World Translation. More on that in just a few seconds. Before we get there, though, it's important to note that there are an estimated 8.5 million actively practicing Jehovah's Witnesses today. And that number is, by all accounts, steadily growing and what are those 8.5 million souls banking their eternity on well as we're about to see it's it's all sinking sand because this false teaching system this cult group has a wrong view of the scriptures a wrong view of salvation and a wrong view of the savior let let's start with its wrong view of the scriptures jehovah's witnesses clearly have a wrong view of the scriptures The New World Translation, commissioned by Nathan Knorr, which was not finally published and printed until the 1950s, intentionally modifies the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament to support Jehovah's Witness teaching and doctrine. There are so many problems with the the New World Translation, uh, too many to go over comprehensively on one podcast, but I do want to go through at least a few of them, just to give you a flavor of how bad this translation is and the assault it makes on the actual text of Scripture. Let's start with the New World Translation's rendering of John one one, In the New American Standard Bible version of what I'm reading from, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's how the New World Translation renders it. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So the Watchtower Society here has gone to great lengths to twist the Scripture, to support its belief that the Word, meaning Jesus Christ, is not co-equal and not co-eternal with the Father. Let's look at another one, John eight fifty eight. Here it is in the NASB. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that was a clear statement of deity by our Lord. When he used the words I am to refer to himself, Jesus there was hearkening back to that scene in Exodus chapter 3 where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush as I am. Jesus then applies those words, I am, to himself in the midst of being confronted by the religious leaders of his day. And so crystal clear was Christ's intention in using those words that in the very next verse, John eight fifty nine, it reads, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. See, what Christ proclaimed was blasphemy to a first century Jew to equate oneself with Yahweh. So Jesus's opponents, applying their law consistently, sought to kill him. Well, the New World Translation changes John 8, 58 to read this way. It says, Most truly I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, I have been. So by taking the I am statement out of the original Greek, ego eimi, the translators of the New World Translation have, in keeping with their denial of the deity and eternality of Jesus, gutted this passage of what it says about the deity of Christ. Well, the New World Translation not only denies the deity of Jesus Christ, it shows that Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. To show what I mean, consider Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which in our Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, moving over the face of the waters. Here's how the New World Translation renders those same verses. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Now the earth was formless and desolate, there was darkness upon the surface of the watery deep, and God's active force was moving about over the surface of the waters. See, the Holy Spirit to them is not God. According to this movement, he's not a he at all. Rather, the Spirit is an it, it's an active force. These are just a handful of examples. I could give you many more, but the point is that what we see over and over— is the text of the New World Translation repeatedly being bent and twisted to match the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witness movement. Not only that, though, it has been shown and proven time and time again that those who worked on the New World Translation, when it was being cobbled together less than 75 years ago, were demonstrably incompetent to be doing what they were doing, namely, cooking up an entirely new Bible translation— See, four out of the five men who worked in the New World Translation had no Hebrew or Greek training whatsoever. Not minimal, not elementary, none. Zero. They didn't have the slightest familiarity with the basics. Now, what about the fifth, you might ask? Well, the fifth claimed to be competent in Hebrew, but when he took a simple Hebrew competency test to back up his claims, he failed miserably. He was more than just a bad test taker who had a bad day; he was incompetent in the biblical languages, just like the rest of the translation team. The whole thing then that the process of creating this new world translation was a mess, which has led to comments like these from from various theologians and scholars and authors. Ron Rhodes calls it an incredibly biased translation. H H. Rowley calls it a shining example of how the Bible should not be translated classifying it as an insult to the Word of God. Uh, William Barclay says the deliberate distortion of truth by this sect is seen in the New Testament translation. It is abundantly clear that a sect which can translate the New Testament like that is intellectually dishonest. Bruce Metzger says the New World Translation is a frightful mistranslation, pernicious and reprehensible. Well, not only have the Jehovah's Witnesses butchered the scriptures, they've entrenched themselves in their positions. They consider their own doctrinal positions to be authoritative and exclusively so, and that's because, in light of the changes brought about by Judge Rutherford, no one is allowed to question official Watchtower teaching, including its very wrong and very novel translation of the Bible. All this to say, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a wrong view of scripture. They also have a wrong view of salvation. Most critically, the Jehovah's Witness movement teaches that salvation is not through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather, in order to be saved, a person must become a Jehovah's Witness, be baptized in a kingdom hall, live a life of obedience, and remain in good standing with that church. But don't take my word for it. Consider their own sources. This is from JW.org. It says, Deliverance from sin and death is possible through the ransom sacrifice of Jesus. To benefit from that sacrifice, people must not only exercise faith in Jesus, but also change their course of life and get baptized. Or here's another official statement from this group. They say, When a person, on the basis of the scriptural knowledge he has gained, has belief in Christ as the Savior whom God provided, and shows his faith by his works, he can consider himself as being on the way to salvation. What both of those statements tell us is that the Jehovah's Witness religion is fundamentally works-based. This movement insists that good works are necessary for salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But the Jehovah's Witness movement says, To benefit from that sacrifice, people must not only exercise faith in Jesus— but also change their course of life and get baptized. In other words, they mix works in with faith, which by definition is legalism. Soul-destroying legalism, they have a wrong view of salvation. Last, Jehovah's Witnesses also have a wrong view of the Savior. I've already made mention of this, but, but plain and simple, the Jehovah's Witness movement denies the full deity of Jesus Christ. And they do so by virtue of their direct and open denial of basic Trinitarian truth. They deny the Trinity. Again, though, no need to take my word for it. Consider their own words. This is from JW.org. It says, we have learned from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God and that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. Though they do acknowledge Jesus to be divine, and in some sense, they teach that he is a created being. Again, this is JW.org. It says Jesus is the only one directly created by God. Jesus is also the only one whom God used when he created all other things. There was a heretic named Arius who taught the same thing in the fourth century, which means Jehovah's Witnesses are not only teaching heresy, they aren't even being creative about it. Rather, they are simply recycling old heresies which have been rightly and roundly condemned for centuries. All this to say, the Jehovah's Witness movement is not only troubling and not only concerning, it is heretical and it is a cult. A cult which promotes directly unbiblical beliefs about scripture, about salvation, and about the Savior. So as we wrap up, these are the key teachings you need to be aware of to fully understand the seriousness of the errors of the false teachings of this cult group. And these are the key teachings you need to have in mind as you encounter the false teachings that are being taught by the people who are trapped in this cult. And how do we go about doing that, knowing that this is the belief system of this religious group that they identify with? How do we speak truth back to those who identify as Jehovah's Witnesses? I'm going to give you a few familiar suggestions as we close. First, approach them earnestly. See them not as arguments to win, but rather souls who need to be saved. Approach them with the heartache that Paul had and expressed in Romans 10.1, when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Second, approach them humbly. Adopt the attitude that Paul charged Timothy to employ in 2 Timothy two twenty four and 25, when he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Third, approach them prayerfully. Pray for the modern-day Jehovah's Witness movement. Pray for the people who are trapped in it. Praying in this way will soften your heart toward those who have been ensnared in its lies. Well, I hope you found today's episode helpful and that you're receiving it for what it is, which is just one pastor's attempt to speak the truth in love. I'd encourage you to share this episode far and wide. And again, as you do so, pray. Pray that God would graciously snatch many deceived Jehovah's Witnesses from the fire. In the meantime, The last word for today, as always, comes from God and his word, and specifically in 2 Timothy 1.13, where Paul says to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for watching, and thank you for listening in. We'll see you next time on the Sound Words Podcast.